1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
2: It's Monday, October 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Last week, Paul Pelosi, the husband of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, was attacked at their home in San Francisco. We're now learning more about the attacker, who left an extensive online trail of support for conspiracy theories and blog posts railing against Jewish and Black people, the media, and transgender people. When he entered the home, he kept asking, where's Nancy? Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill, joins us for what we know about this attack, and the broader concern is we see an increase in political violence. Next, Halloween means it's time for spooky movies, and horror movies in general have had quite the evolution over the past 100 years. Some of the best horror movies have acted as a mirror, reflecting our own fears of the time back at us, and built upon each other to get us where we are today in the genre. From the early days of the classic movie monsters to the slashers and serial killer flicks, all the way to modern horror movies, they have all been commentaries of what's going on in the world at the time. Asia Romano, culture writer at Vox, joins us for the horror century of movies. It's news without the noise, let's dive in.
1: RP stated that there's a male in the home and that he's going to wait for his
3: wife. RP stated that he doesn't know who the male is, but he advised that his name is David and that he is a friend.
2: RP sounded somewhat confused. Joining us now is Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Julia.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: Well, last week we saw an unfortunate attack on Paul Pelosi. This is Nancy Pelosi's husband uh, at their home in San Francisco. The assailant broke in. His name is David DePop. He attacked... Paul Pelosi with a hammer. Pelosi has been uh, in the hospital for a skull fracture; he got uh, pretty injured, pretty badly. But he is going to turn out okay after all. But you know, now we're looking into this man. Julia, tell us a little bit more about David Depop and and you know what happened with this attack.
4: Yeah, it seems like he had ties to a lot of these websites and these you know radical elements of you know political circles online and such like QAnon, for example. So, you know, we, we know that, um, you know, in terms of w- with with the attack, we know that he essentially broke into the house yelling, where's Nancy? So that would lead us to believe that he was looking for the speaker him- herself. Right. However, he ended up attacking her husband instead. And it just, I think, goes to show where we are in the state of the safety of politicians and lawmakers. And, in, you know, it seems like political violence is absolutely on the rise. I mean, this just comes recently after um, Congressman Lee Zeldin, who is running for governor of New York, he's a Republican, he was attacked at a campaign rally. And, of course, you've had other lawmakers, not only in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, like the United Kingdom, attacked in the last number of years. So I think it shows that political violence, unfortunately, is on the rise, especially in a post-January 6th world. Yeah, definitely. When we look at this uh, attacker
2: here, David DePapa, you know, he posted hundreds of blog posts in recent months, uh, sharing memes in support of fringe commentators, far-right personalities, uh, things against Jews, black people, Democrats, transgender people. In October, I think he published over 100 posts alone but one of the interesting things is that Nancy Pelosi really wasn't the subject of most of those things or any of those things, uh, those blog posts, I believe so far. Um, so, yeah, very interesting. As you mentioned, he broke in the home saying, where's Nancy? Um, but, uh, you know, unfortunately for her husband, he was the only one that was there. And, and yes, to your point about this kind of larger political violence there's been a lot of polls done recently where people say uh, i think there was a YouGov poll over 40% of americans think a civil wars at least somewhat likely within the next decade i mean that's a pretty scary talk right there
4: it's a very scary topic and like i said i mean you know, we are living in a world where it's just like over a year after when the capital was attacked and we see violence. Obviously, the attack on the Capitol came from, um, you know, right wing violence. But we know that this is violence existing on both sides of the political aisle. And I think it just shows how radicalized um, many people in this country have become as a result of the division and yep. the, the, the divisions in the country.
2: Yeah, definitely i mean when you're looking at the other side too right uh, uh representative steve scalise comes to mind when uh, they were practicing for the um gop uh, gop softball uh, practice baseball practice and somebody you know went there and shot them up uh and, and you know and with all of this right we're getting into the midterms obviously People are concerned mm-hmm. about what's going to be happening there, um, concerned about poll watchers. They're oftentimes kind of an intimidating uh, force at some of these poll places. And so that's a concern going up into uh, into what we're going in, in just a week, pretty much.
4: Yeah, yeah, just a week. And we know that coming out of the 2020 presidential elections, and this is the first major um, nationwide election after the 2020 election, we know that there are lots of questions as our, as to what will the role of poll watchers be? Um, you know, how strictly monitored will these elections be? How fair will these elections be? I guess you have both sides sort of coming at this very differently. And this is also, um, you know, a post COVID world, you know, or we're still in COVID, excuse me. Um, however, we've, you know, uh, hopefully we've um, come out of the height of COVID. So we don't see as many people voting by mail, you're going to see more people voting in person. So uh, I think it'll be a big litmus test for
2: that. And looking to the midterms, right, we've been talking a lot about the Pennsylvania Senate race there between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. The Democrats not really happy at all with the uh, performance from John Fetterman. And so now they're pulling out all the stops to really help him uh, make it through, I think. Uh, so, So we saw President Biden and Kamala Harris both there. I think this coming week, Former President Obama is going to be there with President Biden. Uh, they're throwing tons of money at the race. I mean, they're doing everything they can to really help them there.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So the debate performance was not good for John Fetterman. And of course his team very much telegraphed that the Monday before the debate releasing a memo saying, look, John Fetterman does not have the leg up in. This He's coming into this debate, still recovering from a stroke going against someone who spent, um, you know, well over a decade in television. So there's that. Um, and you also just have the nature of Pennsylvania being a very purple, very tight race. Um, you know, president Trump in 2016 and then president Biden in 2020, won the state by very narrow, narrow margins. And we've seen that since, um, you know, it seems to be very much a bellwether. So as the conditions nationally have gotten better for Republicans, as um, we've seen the polls close, inflation once again becoming a concern, rising gas prices becoming a concern, crime coming becoming a concern, you see, um, you know, Dr. Oz appearing to really tick up in the polls and perform really well in that way.
2: The Democrats still have a lot of hope, as we've been talking about. Right. This is kind of one of the seats that they hope will uh, help them uh, retain control of the Senate. And Fetterman's campaign you know, said they raised two million dollars in less than 24 hours after that debate. A million of that came in uh, the first three hours after the debate. So uh, they still feel pretty good about it for now. So we'll keep an eye out uh, one week to go pretty much. And then uh, we'll, we'll start laying out and see what the what Congress looks like. Julia Manchester, national political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you
4: for having me.
1: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic.
0: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect.
2: asia romano culture writer at vox thanks for joining us asia my
3: pleasure thanks for having
2: me let's talk about horror movies you recently wrote an article called the horror century basically looking at how horror movies have evolved built on top of each other and really posed as a reflection to american life and obviously the world as well but really just posed as a reflection to what's going on at the time i love horror movies I've been trying to get as many in as possible you know right now that it's uh we're getting up onto Halloween and everything. Um so it was a perfect time to talk about this. Let's start off with with that though. Just kind of how these horror movies really are a reflection of we're seeing uh, what we're seeing at the time.
3: I think it's great that you love horror. I think a lot of people do love horror and instinctively recognize that about horror that you know there's something about a movie that looks at what we fear and what we're afraid of and that kind of gets at this collective subconscious anxiety, right? Sometimes we may not really understand what we're afraid of until we see a horror movie that allegorizes it for us, right? And I think we see that um, throughout the, the cinema century if we look back at sort of the trajectory of these films you know from from like the monster movies of the universal era right where these monsters were sort of standing in standing in for very like concrete things through to like the more allegorical films of like the 60s and 70s and and even now today we have lots of movies that are really nebulous and and metaphorical and and really kind of cool in the way that they the more abstract they are the more you can like read into them and project right. your own fears onto them
2: Pre-war Hollywood, uh, you know, the big monster type movies, the popularized by Universal Studios, uh, you know, uh, Dracula, Frankenstein. You know, we're looking at actors like Bella Lugosi, Boris Karloff, Lion Cheney. How did these play out? Films like these,
3: you know, are being made after World War One, right? And so they, people are really kind of reeling from this, from the first modern war, right? So you have uh, things that are sort of like the, a lot of the plots of these movies are kind of pitting the old world against the new world, right? Like this idea of tradition um, being obliterated in the wake of uh, in the wake of modernity and and you know, uh, modern cities and lots of these monsters, these supernatural creatures, kind of invading these really urbane cosmopolitan cities and just sort of taking over everything
2: obviously these kind of set up so much for the future as well you know talking about how other uh, movies build upon that um you know these monsters uh, themselves especially as i mentioned from universal studios uh are really just the class the big classic monsters that were that are have been around since then right uh, ver- different variations as well Absolutely.
3: And, you know, a lot of these really deal directly with the idea of the other, the other with a capital O, this idea that people who sort of control the narrative can often turn someone, you know, turn the the quote unquote other into a scapegoat for all kinds of anxieties, right? And project all kinds of fears onto them. And a lot of times these films are really exploring either directly or indirectly what happens when the quote other is connected directly to the self somehow, right? Like, you know, you have... The things like the Invisible Man or the Wolf Man or like Cat People, even you know, this idea that the protagonist could be the person who is 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 somehow corrupted and turned into the evil, and then of course you have that that basic kind of morality like moral um, dilemma being plumbed throughout horror and really built on through you know as we get into more modern crises like the like the environmental. Crisis films of the, the 50s and 60s and so forth. And, and then, of course, then today with all kinds of, of deconstructions of that idea. Right.
2: Yeah, let's, start, let's move on to post-war, kind of this atomic age where we do see a lot of environmental and technology, uh, you know, alien monstrosities. That was a huge uh, factor for even these huge big monster movies like Godzilla, you know, a, a big uh, impact on Japanese films and uh, things that we saw also uh, here on the American side.
3: Right, exactly. And I think that's really interesting to think about in terms of how we view, like right now, I think a lot of our anxieties are really apocalyptic. And what's unique about, you know, the Godzilla films is that they were, they arose in the wake of an actual apocalypse, right? Like, this is Japan's kind of attempt to really grapple with, you know, the worst thing that could possibly happen to humanity having just happened to them, you know? And, and so Godzilla was really an interesting figure because he represents not only the worst that mankind can do, but he represents sort of the ability to rebuild and um, to kind of reclaim, uh, reclaim a sense of control over the atomic age. And he ultimately, you know, in many films later in the franchise becomes kind of a friend to, uh, and like an ally to humans in to <laughs> right. some degree. So
2: we also saw the rise of uh, bad kids, scary kids in the 60s, uh, you know, movies like The Bad Seed and uh, and others, you know, Children of the Corn, things like that. So uh, obviously that, that's all extends. Everything builds upon each other. But, you know, these are the kind of the first times where we we're seeing these scary kids come up, too.
3: And you think about that as a, you know, a, a reaction to, you know, 50s modern housewivery, right? And like the the way that uh, in the post-war era you had women recla- like really, really claiming um, their territory as, you know, suburban moms <laughs> and so forth. And you had this idea of, of, you know, modern feminism sort of sprouting seed and taking root in, in the collective conscious. And the, the dark underbelly of that, I think, is what we see in these types of movies, where you have these, you know, cherubic little girls and boys being raised in these idyllic households, but yet there's something warped and twisted about them right and like what that does to your idea of like the the modern picket fence family and so forth right so
2: yeah
3: i think that's really and and that of course really kind of is a precursor to all of the psychosexual madness that happens in horror films in the 60s and 70s.
2: Yeah, that's the next phase of it, right? The psychosexuality, the occult serial killers really became huge there. I mean, you started off with psycho, but you get into things like Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you will see uh, kind of uh, more, more blood in these movies where you wouldn't see so much of that before. Exactly,
3: and you know a lot of the the films of the fifties, whether they're horror or not, are characterized. And even before the fifties, um, the whole basically up until the nineteen fifties, cinema is sort of characterized to a degree by this idea of repression, because you have the Hollywood Hays Code really kind of putting a, a a layer of censorship over everything and what you can can and can't say and do and show on screen, right? But then in nineteen sixty eight, uh, the Hays Code ended, and and that censorship was was lifted, was lifted basically, and From that point on, it was kind of like all bets were off. And so you really have this this period of like gleeful unrepression, I think, of all of these more sordid themes and ideas. And that really, uh, I think, ties into the idea of all of the occult activity that you had in horror films of the period. You had lots of explorations of Satanism, lots of things like demonic possession and other types of like supernatural activity that really... We're supposed to kind of mirror the the way that basically like the human psyche was kind of breaking down oh. in response to um, to modernity, I think. For sure. And so that's why you, when you get these big, big films like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, right, that were just so seismically impactful in terms of how they made how they changed our ideas of Satan, basically.
2: The pre 9-11 era uh, you know, civilization can't protect you. you. You talk a lot about how American modernity, how things happen in malls. You're really not safe anywhere in in all of this. Uh, you know, we talk about movies like The Gremlins, one of my favorites, also too Nightmare on Elm Street. But you're really mm-hmm. everywhere is fair game for for horror now.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one big one big characteristic of of horror films of like the '80s and so forth is, is that they play around with this idea that there's nowhere that's really safe. And I think that's such a powerful idea because we see it play out everywhere, whether it's on the beach in Jaws or whether it's in shopping malls, right, during with the, the zombie trilogy, Romero, Romero zombie trilogy, or even in your dreams with something like Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and I think the kind of the... the pinnacle film of that of that idea is the Blair Witch project where you have these kids that are really like modern like even today they still come across as like modern very modern and like current kids you know they've been raised in a very safe environment and very you know like you know by people with all the privilege that the the Reagan era afforded economically right so they're these very self assured kids they're from college they're going into the woods for what's supposed to be this you know easy student documentary film weekend right and then everything goes to hell and all of the like these these this huge like van full of assorted trappings that they brought with them from civilization just proves completely inadequate and they wind up like arguing over a map in the woods right and that map basically kind of becomes sort of a before and after point you can think of horror cinema like because before like basically with the Blair Witch Project there's this idea that you have this map and it's lost, like you're completely off the map, like here there be dragons, right? right. Um, but then 9-11 happens, and I think with 9-11, you have this emerging idea that I think horror really plays with, that there never was a map to begin with, and we're all lost, and we're all just sort of waking up to the bleakness of that idea.
2: Right, and, you, and we see a kind of reinterpretation of a bunch of traditional horror formulas after this, but as you mentioned, it's kind of like how horror looks like in the real world connections to to loss and other violence and things like that and and this is kind of what happens post
3: 9/11 exactly and to some extent you had this set up with uh, with with scream basically with the advent of scream in 1996 um, and how that allowed horror to really kind of become self-aware overnight and we really saw that the trajectory the progression of that play out throughout the 2000s and and even into today um, you have sort of this idea of genres talking to each other of of the genre talking directly to the audience in some ways. And it all sort of plays with, within this, this realm of this idea that there are no narrative rules anymore. So then you have films like like you have films like Twenty Eight Days Later that are um you know it's a traditional playing with a traditional zombie um formula but it's layering all these other really dark, uh, nihilistic commentaries about uh, about social decay and man's inhumanity to man and so forth, like on top of it in this way that really kind of really refreshes the
2: genre. Asia Romano, culture writer at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you. My pleasure.
2: That's it for today.